Miss the show, no worries on point. And on this podcast, when your fight for freedom takes the freedom of someone else, are you winning the actual battle? Has the trucker convoy overstayed its welcome? And is it at risk of losing any support and goodwill that it was able to drum up across this country? We'll talk about whether or not they should be reading the room and maybe some of the strategies they should be implementing to win this battle. Aaron O'Toole is out. What comes next? This is no longer Stephen Harper's conservative party because he could actually control his party. So where do conservatives go now? Who leads the party? Does the party move to the center or further right? I mean, the next few months we'll see conservatives divide into camps. There'll be a lot of infighting and leadership ambitions that take over. But what does the party look like moving forward? Is it headed for another right-left split from within? Or Will they finally figure out a path to beat the Trudeau government? Whoopi Goldberg has been suspended by ABC over comments she made about the Holocaust. And whether or not she stays alive, who knows? That'll be uh, decided on another day. But has she opened the door finally for the mainstream to have a conversation about Jew hate and maybe learn a thing or two? We'll talk about that. And we'll also talk about America sending more troops to Ukraine as Putin ratchets up his crazy talk. Canada's not sending weapons to help Ukraine, but we do have things on the table we could actually be doing that would not just help Ukraine, but it would scare Putin. Why aren't we using them? Let's get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson. Canada is in a dire moment of our history. You need only take a walk down the street in front of Parliament to see how divided we are. So my message to my party is the same I will give to the Prime Minister and members of Parliament on all sides of the House of Commons. Audi alterum partum. Hear the other side. Listen to all voices, not just the echoes from your own tribe. Realize that our country is divided and people are worried. Work together because how we as leaders act now will define the next generation. Aaron O'Toole calls for unity, but no longer leads a very divided party. Alex Pearson with you on Wednesday, February 2nd. Happy Groundhog Day. A day where it has been nothing but breaking news all day long. And uh, a lot of dark storms brewing in this country, which of course includes a snowstorm that uh, could cause all sorts of headaches and starting in certain areas of the province. We'll keep an eye on that. And of course, it's Groundhog Day for the Conservatives, which can't find a leader it will stick with. And so now here we are on number five. It's like a spinal tap, like the drummer, right? So Aaron O'Toole has been forced to walk in the snow, ending a very short leadership that some thought, you know, look, give the guy more time to perfect you know, figure himself out. But in politics, especially if you're a conservative, uh, the knife has come out at lightning speed because um, whoever said politics was nice, it is a blood sport. But uh, we'll talk about kind of the different elements. There's a whole bunch of different angles on this. But but one of the bigger issues is more than just Aaron O'Toole. I mean, this is a party in free fall and um, it needs to figure out what it stands for or who it stands for because they don't know. And I don't know, which means you don't know. And that's not good for anybody. Because not only does the party need someone who can actually win, but the party 
you know, needs to be a strong opposition. We need a strong opposition in this country, and we don't have that. And it's dangerous if we don't, because the Trudeau government certainly needs to be held to account. And there are very real issues facing this country, country whether it's spending or inflation, cost of living, national security, China, Russia, COVID recovery. We have some of the biggest challenges of our lifetime, and we have zero opposition right now to hold the Liberals' feet to the fire. And we're not going to for months, because this whole gong show is going to have to continue to play out. But you know who's loving it? You know who's absolutely overjoyed? It's like Christmas for Justin Trudeau. He loves this dumpster fire. Loves it. It is a gift of God. And uh, I watched Question Period to see what the reaction would be. And uh, he was actually quite conciliatory, um, very conciliatory today. So he did not take uh, partisan shots. He uh, paid a nice tribute to Mr. O'Toole, as did Jugmeet Singh. But you know, this whole thing is going to serve him well. But he's got all sorts of distractions that are serving him really well right now, which includes this trucking convoy, which is uh, still a major story in this country. And uh, some do say that it may have been the straw that broke O'Toole's back, you know, his inability to take a stand. But the organizers, you know, as of now, are not going anywhere. And we're talking about a couple of hundred of the, I guess, the hardliners, the hardline freedom fighters who are now occupying Ottawa's core. And late this afternoon, the Ottawa police say that um, a significant amount of the money funding this convoy is starting to dribble in from the United States, and also that Americans are in the protests and more are coming. And um, that shouldn't happen. I'm sorry. But as far as I'm concerned, Americans have no business disrupting this country or adding fuel to this fight. I mean, they can do it in their own country, I don't care, but they should not be doing it here. And if nothing else, you know, I like to be consistent. I don't like occupations. I didn't support um, what happened to Caledonia. I did not support the rail blockades or Antifa holding Portland hostage. So, look, I don't agree with truckers, you know, paralyzing a city for weeks because all it's doing is hurting the local people who have absolutely nothing to do with this. They're not the prime minister. They're not the government. They just want to go to work. They want to feed their baby. They want to take the dog for a walk. They just want to sleep. And now they have no freedom. And all we hear is these horns going all night long. It's driving us crazy. I haven't slept in three days. We're trying to get to campus, but all of the um, bus routes to campus are closed. It's a little bit intimidating coming into work, which I have to do every day. They're in the, what I would call the splash zone. I feel bad for them. Um, and, but when you want to change something in history, there's always going to be some um, uncomfortableness involved in that. Mm, uncomfortable is one thing. But these people are exhausted too. And I know that'll excite the base of the movement. Uh, but I think they do need to ask themselves, uh, are you looking to win the battle or do you want to win the war? Because despite some questionable agendas by some of those organizing the convoy, it did and has built up a lot of goodwill across this country. You saw it all over the highways and all the overpasses. But the longer they stay in Ottawa, they become the very same thing on the left, which they say they despise. And they say they're not going to leave until the Prime Minister meets them. Well, here's a newsflash. Trudeau is never, ever going to meet them. Never. Not now. Not tomorrow. Not ever. He's happy to name call. And he's doing it because he's reading the room. 
And he's reading the polls that they do every night. And he knows that the longer this group angers everyday people, the better he looks. I mean, is that the goal? Because it shouldn't be. I mean, I, do you want to play right into his games? If I were advising this group, and I, I am not, I'd be telling them, use the kill-it-with-kindness approach. It's hard to do, but man, it is gratifying. You know, you take your wins and you fuel the fight elsewhere. Don't burn the goodwill on a prime minister who will never play your game. Play your own game. Make your point, but don't burn the hearts and minds of the support that has been built by driving it away with things like blaring horns or, or disruptions or, you know, having Americans who have no business being in this country getting involved in Canadian interests. And they should see some of the wins, like changes in the air. Politicians are changing their tune. They're starting to say, hey, we got to live with COVID, no more lockdowns. And then you got Premier Legault backing down on his vax tax. And so these are the wins. But Trudeau is never, ever, ever going to remove this mandate. You can sit there in that truck for five years and he will never move this mandate. So why not let him hang himself? Let him have to explain a policy that most countries have abandoned. And I get the anger. I do. I get it. I haven't painted this whole crowd as a violent racist, but I am also reading the room. And the few digging in their heels right now are losing hearts and minds because when your cause of freedom takes that very same thing from others, then you're losing. Just ask Pierre Polyevra. You have the right to swing your fist, but that freedom stops at the tip of another person's nose. And right now, these blockaders are taking away the freedom of other people to move their goods and themselves where they want to go. And that is wrong. So he said that comment about the rail blockades back in 2020. And so he'll have to square that spin for a convoy that he has supported and which now risks overstaying its welcome and overplaying its hand. Aaron Tool's my friend. You know, I think he did a, an admirable job under very difficult circumstances over the last you know, number of months, not just in the last number of days. You know, but I'm a team player and uh, caucus spoke pretty convincingly and we're going to move on we're going to find a new, new leader. Well, right now, Canada is divided. We have a Prime Minister that has divided us. There's an open nerve out there that he continues to aggravate. Um, we see it on the streets with the truck drivers. We, we see it back home as well. There's disunity across Canada. What we need to do is have a leader to bring us all together. I think for me, uh, the turning point was uh, when the former leader uh, lumped all people who had signed the, uh, the notice into being Derek Sloan and Randy Hillier. I didn't think that was fair. There you go. Those are a couple of the Conservative MPs after the vote was held. And Aaron O'Toole, you know, he said, I'm not going anywhere. And uh, he tried a last-minute Hail Mary to try to save his job. But uh, tonight, he's out as leader. He will stay on as MP. Uh, and the vote wasn't even close. I mean, it came in at 73 to 45. So it wasn't like it was a squeaker. And now what happens? Well, we could be hearing in the next hour-ish, two. We're supposed to hear tonight about an interim leader. And that will likely um, 
I think Candace, what is her name? I always forget her name. Candace, uh, I'll forget it. It's her deputy leader. Um, her name evades me right this second. She will be probably picked to lead the party until a new leader is picked. And then we face months and months and months of distracting leadership battles with a large pool of candidates who are going to be calling themselves, you know, selling themselves as the person who can rebuild and, you know, unite the party. Candace Bergen, that's it. Yeah, sorry, that was bugging me. But whoever... Um, becomes a leader either will be taking the party further right, you know, more to the center, or just, you know, repeating what they've just done. And, you know, in one of his parting tweets, Aaron O'Toole himself said, and he put this out last night, stay with me and uh, build the, you know, the base, or go down a dark, divisive, angry, extreme, negativity. You can go with Derek Sloan and Randy Hillier, but he called it a dead end and the end of a party that will become the NDP of the right. So it's interesting to see where he uh, is going with this, how he's positioned it, but nonetheless, that uh, didn't necessarily go over well with his colleagues. Let me bring in Mr. Brian Lilly. He's a political columnist for the Toronto Sun. He has been following this every uh, moment of the day, just like the rest of us. Good to have you. Uh, good, to, good to speak to you, Alex. It's, uh, and it's nice to finally almost be done with this, because you're right, I've been following it all day. At about three o'clock, realized I had not taken the dog out in, in hours like I should have. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like that sort of hyper-focused day. Um, yeah. But, you know, it, O'Toole putting it in those terms really helped not him maintaining his position as leader, but it actually pushed people to the other side and, and made... You know, it wasn't just social conservatives who were upset with them or people, you know, I don't know who in the party would be aligned with Randy Hillier or Derek Sloan. But, uh, but it pushed moderates who were on the fence or even on his side to say, I'm not going to be in a party. This is honestly what I was told. People said to me, I don't want to be in a party where the leader defines us by how Justin Trudeau defines mm -hmm. us. And that's what he did. He yeah. took Justin Trudeau's characterization of the Liberal Party or CBC's nightly depiction of the Conservative Party, and he put that label on them. And that pushed people over to the other side. And that's why it was 73 instead of 53. Yeah. And the other thing he did, you know, he basically said, you know, last minute, hey, I'll be this, I'll, I'll get rid of the carbon tax, I'll, I'll do this, I'll do that, which again, is why he failed as a leader, because he couldn't take a position. It's like, stick a position, own it, sell it, wear it. And so, you know how this all works. Now we go into months of, I mean, I wish they could do it sooner, but it's going to go into months of, of leadership fights. Um, at a time when we really need uh, focus and a strong opposition, but nonetheless, they're going to go into these leadership battles, and a lot of names are swirling. Everyone from Pierre Polyevra, uh, Leslin Lewis, Patrick Brown, Peter McKay, Rona Ambrose, by the way, for those who are saying, please make it, Rona Ambrose is not going to be a contender. But I don't know if Brad Wall has said a hard no, but there's a, so, Michael Chong could be in there. Who are you hearing, and who do you see coming in? Uh, Brad Wall is not coming out of retirement. Um, Damn. He, uh, he is enjoying life as a <laughs> retired politician and part-time rancher. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it, that's honestly what he does. He does some consulting work out of Calgary. Uh, and he uh, he and his son, uh, Coulter, who's you know developed quite a good following uh, for his music mm -hmm. career, they own um, a, a small herd of cattle. And that's what he spends his time on. That and, you know, foolishly cheering for the uh, Las Vegas Raiders. 
Yeah, if you're gonna put, if you're gonna shovel crap, uh, I think you do the real stuff instead of dealing with the stuff in politics. But nonetheless, you know, um, this is going to be, I think, a big pool um, of contenders. But they're going to be either, um, you know, here we go again. You're gonna have some to the right, like, like a Pierre Polyavra, um, and then you're gonna have the Michael Chongs uh, or those further, like Peter McKay, who are more progressive. And then you're on the other side, you'll have Leslie yeah. Lewis, uh, Derek can we Sloan, talk about who that else? For a minute? Yeah. Can we, can yeah. we talk about that idea that people are liberal light or progressive? You know, Peter McKay was arguably as conservative or more so, especially on issues like justice and uh, in foreign affairs, than Aaron O'Toole. Mm-hmm. And, and Michael Chong is always portrayed as this big red Tory, like he's almost a liberal. Michael and I disagree on CBC, which he has a strange affinity for that one day I hope there's a cream for, and he's cured. But Michael is very, very conservative, and these guys are unfairly tagged by their opponents, and then, you know, it becomes part of the, uh, the conversation among the angry rump that you hear from on Twitter, just as I do. But that's not reality. It's not the reality of the party. It's not the reality of, of life in Canada. So, you know, lots of the names that you're putting forward would be big. Will Michael run? I don't know. I'll, I'll be checking with him shortly. Peter McKay has gone silent. Um, mm-hmm. He has people speaking for him who say he's running and people speaking for him who say he's not. What the reality is, I'm, I'm, you know, let's wait for Peter McKay to speak. Lisa rates out. I was on a Twitter spaces with her last night and look, her, yeah. her husband has early on, yeah. onset Alzheimer's. She's not going to run. She says she'll keep supporting the party, but, you know, she can't get back into elected uh, politics at this point. Um, Ron Amber, which is unfortunate, because had they gone with her the first time around, uh, they might be in a, a much different position, uh, you know, today. However, will there be any outsiders uh, who you see coming in? Well, when I did up a, a list, and I've got my my full list and my handicapping of it up at Toronto.com. Okay. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I included all four Mulroney children just for fun because people, okay. you know, some people say, well, we you know we need a Mulroney to beat a Trudeau. Okay, no. well, Caroline, Caroline's already a minister, and she's, um, uh, you know, she's handling her files quite ably, is what I hear over at Transport at Queen's Park. She's not moving. Um, ben Mulrooney has publicly said he has no interest in politics. We'll see if that holds true, but, you know, he's not the political one. Mark, but Mark, Mark could jump in. Yeah. Mark Mulrooney, who's uh, vice chairman at Scotiabank, is very politically astute, but I don't think he wants it. He's got a house full of young kids. And, and then there is another one named Nick Mulrooney. Uh, nobody knows about him, so they'll be shocked to hear he exists. He's an investment banker who invests in bakeries and pizzerias. And all his siblings say he's the smart one, which means he probably will avoid politics. Yeah, I just want someone qualified and who doesn't uh, feel shame running as a conservative and who can break the narrative of, of this uh, dark cloud and all the rest of it. But nonetheless, you know, this is going to go on for a while, um, and I think a lot of people, everyone I talk to obviously says Pierre Polyevra, but at the same time, you got to pick a leader who can get elected in the 416-905, and I only got about 30 seconds left, Brian, but that brings up then Patrick Brown, who has matured in his time since leaving Queen's Park. Uh, he's got a very big following in, in the 905, but, but there's, they've got to be able to break through to get that vote. If Patrick has publicly said, no, I don't believe him, and I've told him I don't believe him. So we'll see what happens there. Um, and if uh, Pierre's going to win, you've got to learn to say his name. That's Poilievre. 
I know, I say it wrong all the time. Polyev, yeah. Uh, it took me, you know, I've known him for 20 years. It took me a little while to, to get it right. So, um, he, you know, he uh, he appeals to the base. He's got to figure out, can he appeal to the suburban swing voters, the soccer moms who will take the party from 33% to the halls of power. That's what they got to yeah. figure out. And, uh, you know, don't, don't listen to everybody that says the Conservative Party's over. Don't listen to people that say it's got to be this CBC version of what they want. CBC doesn't know what the current Conservative Party is. Go forth, be confident, elect a good leader who will win and win the next election. Tough job, but someone will apply for it. Many will. Brian, appreciate it. Good luck with the brackets. Thank you. Thank you. That is uh, Brian Lilly joining us here tonight. And let's be truthful about it, because the Holocaust isn't about race. No. No, it's well, not about maybe race. Maybe ethnicity. Well, it's, no, it's about a, a different it's, race. But it's it's not about race. It's not about well, race. What is it about? Because you, it's about man's inhumanity to man. That's what it's about. But it's about white supremacy. It's well, about but it's not, it's not about and, and race. It's not but these are two Romans. white groups of people. Well, how do we have to black people see them, them as white men? But you're missing the point. You're yeah. missing the point. Yeah. The minute you turn it into race, it goes down this alley. Let's talk about it for what it is. It's how people treat each other. It's a problem. Boy, oh boy. Uh, the problems are many. And key to this discussion is that, you know, Whoopi Goldberg and many others are very clueless to the facts about the Holocaust. That it is very much about one race that Hitler viewed as inferior and wanted to wipe Jews from existence. And then he, of course, included others like gays and gypsies. And, you know, they got lumped in. But, you know, Goldberg's apologized. Step one, which is good. ABC's now suspended her for two weeks. Now, I'm not about, you know, firing anyone because I don't actually believe that needs to happen. But I do kind of see this now as a learning moment because thanks to Goldberg and, you know, her forcing this ignorance into the mainstream, maybe now people will finally start to understand that Jew hate is not just a neo-Nazi or a white supremacist issue. This hate is spreading in both the left and the right with many not even seeing the hate that is right out front of them. Avi Ben-Lolo is founder and chairman of the Abraham Global Peace Initiative. He joins us now. Good to have you. Thank you very much for having me, Alex. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, I mean, when I when I saw the comments um, that Whoopi Goldberg said, I mean, there was just so much to unpack with them. But I think, you know, in the conversation, all the ladies of The View, who I don't really think anyone should learn history from, they were talking about, you know, well, it's white nationalists, it's neo-Nazis. And and, and, and then and, and she herself, Whoopi Goldberg, got it so wrong. It, it's hard to imagine that there is that much ignorance. But it was all laid out in the mainstream, which then becomes a truth. Uh, yeah, and, and that's right. And, and the issue is that a lot of people talk about, um, you know, the Holocaust, and they don't understand it. They don't understand history. Um, it's just not their domain. Um, and they get it completely wrong. And sadly, with a lot of distortion happening today, both on social media and otherwise, uh, they're getting it wronger uh, even more so. Um, what will be unfortunately... Um, you know, failed to understand when she made those comments was that the Holocaust was about racism, of course, that Hitler and his henchmen, so to speak, uh, created a racial hierarchy of people. Uh, Jews were at the very bottom, which is why they started with the, with the Jews, and then they would go after everyone else, that they would deem mm -hmm. racially inferior to what they called the Aryan race. 
So it was all mm-hmm. based on um, racist um, white supremacy um, and on what they defined as, you know, genetics. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a, a lot of disinformation out there. And so she has apologized. I don't know if she'll come back or not. Um, but there is a learning moment. I mean, these comments come at a time when we just had the Holocaust Remembrance uh, you know, Day. We also had a, a survey coming out showing that 33% of kids and high school kids don't even think the Holocaust exists or it's exaggerated. And so there's actually an opportunity for mainstream to actually learn about this and what it's about and where the hate's coming from and the cancer of the hate. Because it's not always overtly. It doesn't just come in a Nazi sign. It doesn't just come, you know, uh, in emblems like a a yellow star. There's lots of hate out there. It's just you have to be able to see it. Well, you have to see it, and you have to understand that it affects a lot of people and a lot of different communities, the black community, the Asian community, the Muslim community. And so hate hate is hate, and that's what we all have to fight against. Um, Look, when it comes to the Holocaust, Sadly, it's being used more and more so in a, you know, in a distortive way. And we're even seeing it uh, here in, in Canada and in Ottawa uh, with, with the, the some, a very, very small uh, minority of, of the truckers who, of course, you know, they're, they're, you know, protesting. They can protest. But unfortunately, we're seeing uh, displays of the swastika and uh, as well even buttons with the um, yellow uh, star, the Jewish star. Uh, that relates back to the Holocaust, and that's that's very um, sad to see. And it uh, again is it breeds Holocaust distortion, and um, you know it's up to all of us to use this opportunity, as you just said, Alex, to educate the community as large as wide as possible, to get more people to understand the truth, and most importantly, to listen to experts uh, in the area of Holocaust studies. There's experts in many different fields. Not everybody is an expert on Holocaust education and so i think this is now we've 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 come to a point where you know you need to listen to holocaust educators um you know who are qualified rather than the person on the street speaking about the holocaust yeah and and it's interesting because while all eyes focused on on the protests and the convoy and some of the bad apples there i mean on saturday uh, there was a protest on toronto streets streets where you had protesters calling out for the destruction of israel which when you say that like when you're calling for when you hear chants of intifada intifada that kind of stuff um that's calling for the annihilation of the jewish people that's basically you're saying kill them right. all. Um, but correct. a lot of people wouldn't see that, or, or BDS, or you hear Al-Quds, which get permits from city officials. They go on the streets of Toronto, and they are openly calling for the death of Jews. That stuff is going on all the time. It doesn't get attention. And I think it's because it's more... It, I don't know what the disconnect is, but when you get BDS or, or whistle dog whistles like uh, Free Palestine, people don't hear or maybe understand the underlying uh, message to that. Yeah, and, and again, I mean, it's essentially if you're talking about the Holocaust and the genocide of the Jewish people, when you're, when you're, you know, a lot of these groups, such as the rally that you pointed out, you know, they're essentially calling uh, for the destruction of the Jewish state and the annihilation of the Jewish people from it. And that is a call to genocide. And it's, it's very similar to, of course, you know, when we're talking about the Holocaust. And so, you know, what, what um, is important to do is to understand that when they are referring to so-called free Palestine from the river to the sea, you know, that is the eradication of the Jewish people from, from the state of Israel. Um, no other country um, suffers uh, from anything similar uh, to that. 
And, um, you know, what we've done as an organization is obviously call on uh, authorities. I've spoken to the police chief uh, about it and to ensure that these rallies don't happen because essentially it is hate speech. Yeah. And and on the other side of it, people will say, well, can you not... um you know, criticize Israel, to which I said, yeah, absolutely, you can criticize Israel. Absolutely, you can hold them to account and question things. But when you're isolating Israel for, for uh, you know, issues that you would not, let's say, call other, um, you know, regimes who openly, um, you know, commit terror in that, then, then you're, you're, you're missing the message. Yeah, and, and that's exactly what happened this week with the release of that amnesty report, um, you know, which, again, mislabels uh, Israel and attacks Israel, uh, whereas other countries, you know, whether they be Iran or Syria, and, the, you know, Bashar al-Assad regime has murdered half a million of his own citizens, you know, they never get called out. Uh, no one is saying that they are an apartheid state. No one is calling for war crimes tribunal or anything of that nature only when it comes to Israel and the Jewish state. And that, of course, you know, when you see that double standard, it's basically anti-Semitism. So do you see a bit of a a turning of the tide at this point? Because obviously the convoy got a lot of conversation with a lot of people. Um, You know, they passed a motion in in the House uh, on Tuesday, um, you know, about anti-Semitism and and the wearing of yellow pins and that. That's all great. It's all symbolic. But do you actually see these events and and Whoopi Goldberg and all these as as a a turning point? Um, a turning point? I don't know. Are you that optimistic? (laughs) No, I'm. I'm actually not. Today, I'm not that optimistic. Only because we're we're in a big fight with uh, this issue concerning amnesty. I think it's it's doing a lot of damage. Uh, both to the state of Israel, um, but also to the fight um, to the fight against anti-Semitism, uh, because you know it's just enabling uh, people to, yeah. to hate. And so I'm, this week, I'm not feeling particularly optimistic. Um, I know that governments look. We just we just passed the International um, Holocaust Remembrance Day, and it was amazing because if you if you actually track it year to year, you'll see that every single year there's an increase in governments around the world recognizing International Holocaust Remembrance Day and and honoring it, which is incredible. That's, that's exactly what you want to see. Um, so from that perspective, we were really relieved and, and uh, thrilled. On the other hand, um, you know, at the grassroots level, uh, you know, COVID hasn't made anti-Semitism better. Um, and yeah. the, the continuous attacks from so-called human rights organizations, um, you know, like Amnesty and like, um, you know, uh, Human Rights Watch and others against the state of Israel is actually weakening uh, the case for human rights because Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. Israel is where uh, at least celebrates gay rights and women's rights, but nowhere else in the Middle East do you have that kind of thing. And so if human rights organizations are going after Israel what what's happening with the rest of the Middle East yeah. where there is gender apartheid uh, being practiced? No one is talking about that. And so and so we need to be cognizant of these things. And that's that's why I'm not particularly feeling optimistic today. Well put. All right. Well, we'll continue watching this and see where it takes us. But I very much appreciate your time on this. Well, thank you very much again for having me. That is uh, Avi Benlolo, who is with the Abraham Global Peace Initiative. So there you go. We'll see where this uh, conversation goes. This force is trained and equipped for a variety of missions to deter aggression and to reassure 
and to defend our allies. Alrighty, that's the latest. The United States will be sending 3,000 more troops to Eastern Europe as the saber rattling continues between NATO allies and Russia. So this will be in addition to 8,500 U.S. troops that are set to deploy. And Russia, of course, insists it's not invading Ukraine. And we're to believe that Putin has 100,000 troops surrounding Ukraine just you know, because. And so there's a lot of word games and misinformation being spread all around, mainly by Putin, who now says he's willing to talk, but both NATO and Russia have also, you know, stated they aren't backing down. I mean, Putin wants NATO gone from Ukraine and NATO is not leaving. So we don't really know if there's going to be an actual war or when, but there's certainly a lot of games going on right now. And while our allies continue bolstering up things like weapons and support, Canada is simply standing with Ukraine. And so if we're not actually prepared to send weapons, which they need for the battlefield, why are we not using the weapons we do have on the table, which will hurt Putin where it hurts most, which is his bank accounts? Let me bring in Marcus Kolga, senior fellow at McDonald Laurier Institute, also the founder of DisinfoWatch, and he joins us now. Good to have you. Thanks for having me on, Alex. You have been saying for a long time, you know, we have weapons, uh, they're on the table, we should have already been using them. I mean, right now, UK is preparing this legislation to sanction the oligarchs. Australia is moving to go after the children of oligarchs. And we can use Magnitsky sanctions, and and we just aren't. Like, why wouldn't, why? Well, that's a good question, Alex. Um, you know, we've talked about the fact that, I, you know, I, I champion the Canadian Magnitsky law for nearly, you know, almost a decade, pretty much. Uh, we enacted the law in 2017. Um, we did a pretty good job of using it back then to, to hit uh, some uh, pretty dirty uh, Russian officials, uh, officials in, uh, in Venezuela and other places. But since 2018, we haven't really used it at all. We've fallen behind. We've allowed our allies to place sanctions on some pretty nasty Russian uh, uh, oligarchs and, and such. But uh, but we haven't uh, we haven't used it. We ha- and we've we've not kept up with our with our own allies in that regard. Um, you know, there are corrupt Russian oligarchs, the ones that are very close to Vladimir Putin. Um, these are oligarchs who enable him to remain in power. Um, there are numerous reports that these same oligarchs actually hold on to Putin's wealth. So Putin himself doesn't keep a bank account. He's the, you know, he doesn't have the Vladimir Putin yeah. account at the Bank of Montreal. <laughs> he uses these oligarchs to hold his assets, to hold his money abroad. And we know for a fact that Russian oligarchs have used Canada both in the past and currently use Canada to hide their assets. Maybe not even hide their assets because they're, they're in plain sight. If we were to target those assets with sanctions, that means freezing those uh, those assets. Um, it's pretty. I'm pretty sure that you would see a change in Vladimir Putin's calculus. We're, again, we're not talking about a few thousand dollars, a few million dollars. We're talking about hundreds of millions, if not billions, of dollars that are kept in this country. So, you know, if the government wants to get serious about standing up. Um, against Vladimir Putin to defend Ukraine, to defend democracy and Vladimir Putin's global assault uh, on democracy worldwide. This is a tool that we can use right away. It's not like we need to create any new legislation. We can use this tomorrow immediately to create a very credible and extremely painful cost personally for Vladimir Putin. 
Yeah, it's uh, curious as to why, um, you know, we wouldn't be taking that approach. I don't know if the United States is saying hold off. I don't know what their reasoning is. I mean, um, right now, I mean, Putin is kind of blowing off the threats of sanctions from the UK. Um, but the thing is, Russia is Europe's major energy supplier. So they've they've yeah. got some some pull over Europe, which is having major, major energy issues right now. Uh, so maybe he can afford to brush off those sanctions, but he couldn't do it yeah. uh, to North America. Like if we did it, then then that then is a move. Well, there, there are a few things there. When the UK announced that they would be uh, amending their legislation so that they can go after those corrupt oligarchs, um, Putin reacted immediately. He's been... Um, away hidden in his office for uh, the better part of some six weeks or something. As soon as the UK, because, you know, most oligarchs, where they keep their money is, in fact, London. Um, it's, a, it's a hive of dirty Russian money. And, uh, and so when the UK government threatened to place sanctions on those assets, um, it, you know, Vladimir Putin miraculously emerged and came out and said that he would retaliate against those. I mean, that, first of all, that demonstrates the effectiveness of the sanctions. Every time there's a threat of sanctions, Putin reacts, and he re reacts almost irrationally. Now, with regard mm -hmm. to the rest of Europe, um, you know, we're primarily I'm looking at Germany here, who has jumped into bed with Vladimir Putin to construct not one but two natural gas pipelines, which um, quite remarkably um, have increased uh, Russia's own reliance on coal and have made it a, a net massive emitter of, of CO2 gases. Um, Germany is, has jumped into bed with Russia and has become dangerously over-reliant on this Russian gas that is being piped directly from northern, northern Russia. So you're right. I mean, uh, Vladimir Putin has his hands on those gas levers and can uh, open them and close them um, at will. Um, where Ukraine plays into this is that uh, most of that energy or most of that gas used to run through Ukraine. And uh, now that uh, that gas can bypass Ukraine, Russia also has a free hand to uh, to go into Ukraine as well. So there's there's that at play. And, and Germany has really been on the fence with a lot of these, uh, you know, the talk of sanctions and and even blocked an arms shipment uh, a week and a half ago that Estonia was going to send, little old Estonia, um, yeah. was going to send Ukraine. And the Germans blocked it um, inexplicably. So, hmm. um, you know, there are uh, some some interesting, not interesting, but some concerning uh, sort of nuances to all of this in, in Europe as well. Yeah, it's interesting. And then um, you had Putin who... Uh He's in a lot of tough language. He, uh, there's a canceled call between he and Boris Johnson on Monday. And so now now today he's been mocking the prime minister, calling him utterly confused and that if anyone needs saving, it's uh, from the world and the stupidity and ignorance of British politicians. Um, you know, it would be, you know, he's accusing Washington of trying to provoke a war. He's coming up with all these caustic, yeah. um, you know, uh, language that even um, some say this is kind of different for him. Well, sure. I mean, uh, there has been... Uh... Uh, some, you know, quiet discussion about his mental health. I mean, he's um, <laughs> he's acting quite irrationally. Um, and one has to start wondering whether he's, you know, we know that he's having problems at home. Um, he's His polling is, is really low right now. COVID has ravaged the country. Um, average Russian incomes are, are really very low and have sank to the lowest point in around 15 years. Um, one has to wonder whether there are people inside the Kremlin who are starting to wonder whether it's time for Vladimir Putin to go. And maybe this is what we're seeing. You know, it's, 
you can't rule out that it might be have something to do with that, with Vladimir Putin also consolidating um, uh, power uh, at home. But uh, further to your point about some of these, uh, you know, silly remarks that he's been making, I mean, this is, he's been doing this all along. Um, you know, it's, it's Vladimir Putin who's put 130,000 troops on Ukraine's border, uh, an additional 30,000 in Belarus, effectively, and this is something that a lot of people aren't talking about, but effectively he has occupied Belarus quietly over the past yeah. few weeks. Um, and he's blaming this all on NATO, suggesting that uh, NATO countries are, are, are creating, have created some sort of a set threat to, to Russia and Russia's sovereignty. I mean, it's absurd to think that uh, a, a small country like Estonia or Latvia or Lithuania would ever consider attacking Russia. There would be no need for it. All they want to do is to uh, peacefully get on with their lives. Um, without having this uh, menace, constant menace uh, from across the border. Um, so, yeah. and, and I think that Canadians and Canadian officials need to also be very cognizant of the fact that these narratives are happening. And they have to be careful not to be repeating them. There were some members of parliament, uh, one that I'm thinking about, uh, about was last week that uh, repeated Russian propaganda uh, on Twitter. So we've, we've got to be very, very aware of these narratives and make sure that we're not uh, amplifying them as well. Parroting. Yeah, no kidding. With that, the Olympics with China, all sorts of stuff. Boy, oh boy, what a time. And uh, just what we need, another crazy guy with nukes. So uh, we'll keep an eye on it. All right, appreciate uh, the latest intel, and we'll try it again, I'm sure of it. Anytime, my friend. That is Marcus Colden joining us with the latest on that situation. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join me live Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson. This is On Point.